to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 176, recorded on April 15th of 2023. I'm your host, Don Komarechka, and we're about to geek out about photo stuff, because that's what we do on this podcast. If you are new to it, if you've only listened to a few episodes, or if you've been with us since the beginning, you know the formula. We don't stray very far from it. Uh, and we got some uh, interesting stories to talk about today, five of them in total, because I just couldn't choose four. Uh, and it's kind of a, I don't know, I want to say a slight disappointment. We had NAB show this week and nothing really tickled me from that, but there was some tangential announcements, uh, in the photography space that, uh, tagged along with that. So to join me today to, uh, opine about all things photography that I could dig through the news cycle is my very good friend, Steve Brazel. How are you today? I'm quite good, my friend. How are you? I'm good. You know, we were talking in the uh, uh, proverbial green room before we started recording that this is Easter weekend in Bulgaria, the Orthodox Easter. Uh, And before we started recording, uh, I had to prepare a leg of lamb to be uh, slow roasted in the wood fired oven for lunch. And uh, that means it's been an early start for me. And it was a long day yesterday. So uh, I, this is going to be an interesting episode just because I'm feeling somewhat exhausted and opinionated, and that might show through in my commentary. Uh, and I think you've, you're kind of in a similar boat. Yeah, we've both had busy days, let's say. I had to do a, a quick turnaround uh, from where I live down to San Diego to see my son today, and then turn around and come back home and record this and could not be more excited because, as always, A, love being on the show. B, you pick some fun stories, and I, I think this show is no exception to that. Well, let, let's get into the, the first story then. Or The first story kind of comes in three parts. Um, there is a new camera on the market. There's actually two new cameras, but they're not really new. They're modifications of existing formulas. Um, so Petapixel reports a hands-on with the Leica M11 monochrome. And DP Review reports that Ricoh has announced a Pentax K3 Mark III monochrome DSLR, and also from Petapixel that I found within the last week, uh, color filters for black and white photography, a complete guide. Now, these three stories all tie together for the fact that there seems to be some interest in a camera that is devoid of color. And I get it. I, I get that if you're if you're going to be shooting black and white, uh, if you remove the Bayer filter or whatever type of color uh, information filter from the camera, then every pixel, uh, every photo site, I should say, becomes a pixel because the technical term of a photoreceptor in a sensor is a photosite, and you have red, green, and blue photosites, and then they combine them together, usually in an array of four with a Bayer pattern uh, that creates a singular color pixel that has those three values. But when you remove that, uh, that, that color filter array, you end up with just light just the value of the intensity of the light. The color information is then gone from that formula. And the resolution is technically just about the same. I mean, I remember when I was shooting with the the Canon, was it the 5D Mark II? It was uh, 20, 
21.5 or something or 21.1 uh, million photo sites, but it was a 21 megapixel sensor. So there's a slight differentiation between that. The resolution is arguably the same when it comes down to it. But this is not new. Leica has produced monochrome cameras in the past. I believe this might be the first under the Ricoh brand, unless there was some specific scientific stuff put out there. But I'm having a hard time believing that this is a market of growth in the photographic space. Uh, before I continue my opinions, Steve, what do you think? So I this is one of those things, as I was getting ready for today, I'm thinking to myself, man, I've got opinions, like lots of opinions. First of all, I should say, I have a couple of friends who shoot Leica, and they, you know, they're like what you hear, right? They'll, anybody who shoots Leica never says to you, I hate it. I sometimes wonder if that's because how much money they spent on it, but they all love their Leicas. They swear by their Leicas. In this particular case, we should specify this is a rangefinder style camera. And yes. what you were talking about removing the color filter, when you remove a color filter, while the resolution stays the same, there are advantages. There's no chroma noise. You generally, by removing the color filters, you gain a stop or so in ISO performance, which can be huge, actually, in certain cases, especially for the type of thing that you might, certain street photography type scenarios where you might use a purely black and white monochrome camera. Um, you tend to end up with sharper images. But here's the deal. This is a rangefinder black and white camera that's over $9,000. $9,195 US. $9,100. Let that sink in. $9,195. It's a black and white freaking camera. It has an SD slot. And then it also has 256 gigabytes built in. Of course, if you use the built in, you're going to end up plugging your camera into USB, not using a card reader that's in your computer. So here's... So I, I, I do want to say... Kudos to Leica for putting memory in the camera because there has been occasions where I've forgotten a memory card and it's ruined good my point, day. Good point. But, but right, I wouldn't use it typically, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good backup. I said to you in the green room, the proverbial green room, that I was curious about your opinions on some things with, with some of the stories today. And this is actually one of them because if I had a purely monochrome camera, my cameras I can put in a monochrome mode. But if I had a camera where it was purely monochrome and, and I had to shoot that way, I do believe it would change how I shoot. Seeing in black and white, seeing shapes and shades and light and shadow as opposed to color would change how I shoot. While the technical quality may be better in a monochrome camera though, the truth is I can make sellable black and white images that I shot in color and converted in post that are, and that's yep. the key, unless you're, you're rich and doing it for yourself, Hey, have some fun, but, or rich and doing it for a gig. But the truth is I can shoot anything I want in black and white in camera or convert it in post and make a sellable image. So I don't know why I would spend nine plus thousand dollars on this. 
And you can do it in film too, right? I mean, if you're looking for the authentic black and white feel, then the film environment might be the one that you necessarily go to. And that's where that filter story comes in, because it is important to note that you're basically, uh, when you have black and white imagery, Yes, you can just shoot it and strip the color, and that's that. Um, but there's more to the art of black and white photography than just that, because if you put, say, a, a red filter on on the front of your lens, then you are going to inherently have dark, blackish skies, because right. um, you're not going to allow the blue light to pass through. If somebody's wearing a, a, a red sweater, it's going to appear white, if you have a red filter on it, the choice of the, the color filters that you put on your camera allow you to modify the entire mood of the scene. Uh, if you have a predominant color within the scene, you can choose a filter that will either brighten or darken that particular color. And this is an artistic choice that you can make in the field. And for some people, that's important. But I can run a black and white filter on my color imagery in Lightroom or Photoshop, any tool that you've got, uh, they all have a functionality to do this um, that strips the color dimension down out of the equation and returns you the black and white result from that uh, artistic decision-making process that is far more fine-tuned in post when you have color information to begin with. Again, it's a different experience because when you're making those decisions in the field, you're probably going to make different decisions. And so I'm not going to say that that is an appreciable comparison. They are different. But Steve, you look like you got to say something. They, they're inherently different. And, and, but for completely different reasons, right? So if I'm doing it in post in Photoshop, which has a color filter dialogue you can do, right? If I'm doing it in Photoshop, I can play yep. without taking shots. I can take a singular image and go, that's the one, that's the hero shot, and then play with different filters in post. However, if I use a yellow filter or a red filter in the field, that can also help cut down on haze or fog or atmospheric conditions as opposed to a blue filter, which might accentuate those atmospheric conditions. And if I shoot it in the field without muting those atmospheric conditions, a filter in post may not have the same effect. So for different reasons, they both have different advantages. But I'm going to go back to the ISO thing. To me, that's the disadvantage to filters is, yes, I use my regular camera, but depending on what I'm shooting, like the, the Pentax one, uh, the K3 Mark II, that thing shoots black and white video at 4K30. It's got one stop better ISO performance than its color body equivalent. With no filters attached. Let's uh, With uh, no filters attached. Yes. Right, because as soon as oh, you add a filter, then you're going to be effectively right. cutting the amount of light that it's taking in, right? Correct. Yeah, you will lose exposure. They have uh, uh, a marking on color filters that that it'll be be X and a number. I think it is that tell you about how much you're going to lose. And for that matter, red's not red, right? You put a red filter on, it will have a ratten code on it, and that ratten code may mean red. It may mean deep red. Because no filter is going to be exactly red. There's going to be some ble bleeds into the magenta or whatever. 
Well, I'm, magenta isn't a color, Steve. Uh, let, let's uh, preface that. Shades, in, in that those it, shades. Right, well, but, but, but magenta is a combination of, uh, of, of violet and red, kind of our brains mash them together and cameras try to uh, calculate that based on human vision. But for, for me, these monochrome cameras, they, they could have a purpose. You know, looking to the way uh, NASA records images, right? They, they have a sensor that can collect all light and they have a filter wheel that will uh, allow them to recover, uh, you know, a hydrogen alpha spike, uh, which is somewhere in the, in the deep red spectrum or, of course, infrared or ultraviolet. And they've got this, uh, of course, the standard colors too. But uh, the idea of a black and white camera, I would want one without an infrared or ultraviolet cut filter. I'd want it to just collect as much as that CMOS sensor could possibly collect regardless of reality. And I can put a filter on the front of the lens that blocks ultraviolet and infrared. And I can just use it as the standard visible spectrum and stack another filter on top of that, whether it be red, blue, whatever, uh, to narrow things down to my fancy. But uh, it, if this was to appeal to me, it would have to allow me to throw an infrared filter on Boom, infrared camera. Uh, throw a, a filter that blocks infrared and visible light and lets the remaining ultraviolet light through as best as it can, then that would be an interesting uh, you know, piece of equipment because now I can do things that my regular color camera cannot do. But they have infrared and ultraviolet blocking filters on these cameras. Let's let's mention the specifics a little bit here. Uh, the Pentax K3 Mark III Monochrome is a 25.7 megapixel camera body running for about $2,200, where the Leica M11, we already discussed the price, over 9000 is 60.3 megapixels, I believe. Uh, and so, you know, th they're different playgrounds based on different prices and different features. But they still don't give me anything that artistically, and this is the key point, artistically, I cannot do with my existing camera. If I'm talking about the technicalities and the precision, and if I am a camera technician with a specific task involved, and this uh, checks the box uh, for that particular task, then there you go. But I can take a camera, uh, Leica's been doing the monochromes for a while. Uh, I can't remember if it started with the M8, if they went back that far, but they've made these variations of their cameras for a number of years, uh, probably around uh, close to a decade, I'm guessing. But if you bought that, will you make better art? I'm not talking about the technical aspects of it, but will you make better art with that equipment? I think not. Uh, unless there uh, well, is a, okay, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Let, let me, let me interject here. That's why I'm hyping on the ISO performance. The author of this, Jaron Schneider, the author of this, this petapixel article said that he was getting completely usable images at 20,000 ISO. And that is not something I could do with my current camera. And so in that case, I see the point, but Again, I, I'm with you. From a creative point of view, I'd rather have a color image in front of me that I manually convert uh, to black and white where I have control over every shade and how it renders and the filter choices that I have in post. The one interesting thing you mentioned, by the way, about that Leica is it's not just 60 megapixels, 60 point whatever. You can actually shoot in 60, 36, or 18. 
So okay. you're not you're not stuck with the file size of 60, which is nice. Yeah, but okay. Why why would you buy uh, a fast car and not occasionally want to step on the accelerator, right? You know, like why would you want to have a performance that is at triple A level and then not utilize that? Uh, memory I cards again, it but ha- I'm just saying it's got some variance in there, and that is a feature, whether you'll use uh, it or not. Sure, uh, that's a feature. You know, <laughs> but would you the- spend? Given the twenty two hundred for the Pentax, or the nine plus thousand for the Leica, would you buy the Leica? No. Um, now, would I buy the Leica M eleven, just the standard? Uh, like, no, I wouldn't buy that either. Uh, the, the price point is kind of ridiculous, but I understand that some people are a fan of the brand. They've got lenses. The M mount goes back to the 1950s. I think 1954 or something is when it was introduced. Uh, And so you've got a pedigree that this camera can utilize uh, with lenses that have all sorts. I've got an M mount lens. I've got uh, actually two, one macro lens and uh, one stereoscopic 3D lens for the M mount. And so uh, I've got adapters that, you know, make those work just perfectly fine on my L mount cameras for the Lumix, uh, uh, S series cameras. So no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that road, but if, if you're a photographer that is already invested in that system, then the cost of playing with the latest generation is going to be high and you're used to that by now. So carry on. But I don't think that somebody is going to start investing in this system right now from a practicality standpoint, from a um, a brand association, you know, like a status symbol kind of standpoint. Yeah, people are still going to be buying. You, you win the lottery, you're going to go buy a camera. Uh, you walk into the camera store and say, sell me the most expensive camera you have. It's probably going to be a Leica. Uh, or I mean a phase one or something if they're super fancy, but uh, most camera stores don't have them in stock. But you will have that Leica allure, right? That it's like, okay, well, you've got that red dot association of luxury that Leica has been familiar, uh, I mean, famous for. Uh, Well, I mean, since they started basically. And and let me say, I would love one of these. I'd love to shoot one of these. I'm not going to spend my money on it. But if somebody wanted to gift me one of these, that's fine. And the one thing we didn't mention that we really should is going to a Petapixel post and seeing that the first image is an, <laughs> he's laughing. He knows what I'm going to say. Seeing that the first image is an image of our friend Chris Nichols is awesome. Yes. And uh, we should do, do a brief aside uh, just to state that DP Review um, is going to remain online for a longer period than was previously foreshadowed. Uh, They said that after the content that they had been publishing stops, there would be a very small period of time that the website would be read-only and then it would disappear. Now, it is going to, we don't know the specifics, but it's going to exist as an archive. I don't know exactly what that means, how long that archive is going to be online, and how uh, how much of the content of the website is encompassed uh, uh, encompassed within that archive. But DP Review is going to be that uh, monument that we can all look back to for at least the uh, the short term future. So well, and I'm sure that the internet. I haven't looked. I should, but I'm sure the internet archives got it all too. 
I would hope so. But uh, again, when you have a complex website with an SQL database that's backing stuff up, it can be difficult to uh, to catalog that. I mean, yes, you can catalog the static pages, but uh, especially when you have the the drop down menus that change content uh, from the camera comparisons and stuff. That's not that's not static. That's dynamic in a way. And I don't know how they pull that information forward. So that's true. I do. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and but, by the uh, way, those camera comparisons are some of what I will miss from DP review the most. I agree. They did that perfectly. And for like almost from the very beginning, they started doing that. Um, but, uh, well, I guess that means that I hope, I hope Petapixel starts doing something similar or somebody else, but Petapixel, if they're, uh, adopting Chris and Jordan, um, after, uh, their, uh, uh I guess, reluctant uh, release from DP Review, because they loved it there, I'm sure. Uh, I've worked yeah. with them before. But uh, now at Petapixel, they've got the momentum, I guess is a good word, to uh, to take over some of the stuff that DP Review might have been doing in the past. But anyhow, I, I digress. Let's go to our second story here. And we talk about uh, luxury items and cameras. We might also be talking about cameras that you don't even know you have. Because if you buy a luxury automobile, chances are there's at least one camera in it. If you are buying a Tesla, there is likely half a dozen cameras in the vehicle. And uh, from Petapixel, again, this article, Tesla is being sued over a report that employees shared private car camera footage. I'm not surprised. I'm not really shocked. Uh, if you have data, personal private data being shared with a third party that is not end-to-end -end encrypted where you have the private key and only you can access it, somebody else is going to see it. And if there happens to be salacious content within that, Say you happen to uh, forget something in your car right before you jump in the shower and you run out into the driveway naked to grab whatever that happens to be and that's caught on the Tesla's cameras. Well, somebody at Tesla might find that humorous if they happen to be voyeuristic and have access to that data which they should never have. And once people discover that there are these uh, little hidden treats in your private life, then they're going to keep looking. And they're going to start sharing. And they're going to share that with their other uh, fellow employees that have access to that data. And that's going to create a culture within a company where people start sharing this within private groups. And there comes the lawsuit. Now, I owned a Tesla Model 3 for about two years. And I got to say, I didn't do anything risque around the car. Had I, however... I might have been in one of these files of uh, voyeuristic data sharing within the Tesla organization. Um, but even if I didn't, I might, be, like if this turns into a proper class action, my data would have been available to those people, even if it wasn't interesting to them. And I might have been affected by, by this whole scenario. So Steve, first of all, what do you think of the story? And second, what do you think of data security in general. So first of all, the story, the naked man walking up to his Tesla was not just some aside that Don threw out. That's <laughs> one of the videos that yep. these employees got hold of videos of crashes, 
road rage incidents. There was one where a driver hit a child on a bicycle, and the quote is, it spread through Tesla's office like wildfire. Family pictures were turned into memes with text on them. Um, so what do I think about this? A couple of things. First of all, some of these were being recorded even when the vehicle was parked and off. Let's be clear, that no longer happens. Uh, Tesla no longer sends vehicle sends videos to the office when the vehicle is off. But <clears throat> all of these, these incidents of recording people, or not just people, if your car is parked in your garage and you walk out and your sentry system kicks in, sees you, and turns on the cameras, it's also recording what's in your garage. Do you have anything in your garage that's eyes only, that shouldn't be seen, posters on your wall, whatever? There were seven former employees that told Reuters, even though the, pri the privacy policy for Tesla is your recordings are anonymous and not linked to your vehicle. Seven employees told Reuters for this report that there was GPS location data that could be used to identify you. And here's what irritated me about this. I will never own a Tesla because I have issues with Elon, but this really solidified it to me. Two ex-employees said customers should have known that this would happen and that they gave consent to Tesla to have their data and therefore they shouldn't have any expectation of privacy. That's not Very how 1984. Data, oh my God, man. That is not how data is supposed to work. If I give you permission to use my data as your policy state, the, you, you review these videos for the purpose of uh, providing the services that you are supposed to provide to me, not for employee entertainment. There should be a sense of professionalism and privacy. And part of the, the situation that we are in with data today is <clears throat> there are many people, A, that are naive about technology, many of them in office, unfortunately, but are naive about technology and they don't really understand what technological privacy means or is worth, or B, in some of the, the younger folks' case, they think they know what it's worth and think that they don't care that they have privacy. And both of those are wrong, right? I agree. You, I mean, your got data the idea. shouldn't be somebody else's product to that extent. If you have the idea that, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong, so uh, why should I be afraid of somebody looking into my my inner circle, uh, my, my life? And um you know, I, I generally live a pretty law-abiding life. Uh, do I occasionally go faster than the posted speed limit? Well, I think everybody does, myself included. Um, but, you know, the other day I was walking through the, the city of uh, Varna here in Bulgaria, and I noticed that a lot of the, uh, the pedestrian walk-don't-walk signs, they now have a camera mounted on them. And I, I was thinking to myself, what, what is the functional purpose of that? I mean, to see when somebody's jaywalking and then do facial recognition to somehow deliver them a ticket? Is it to try to capture a, a car running a red light? No, because that would be focused on the cars. This is uh, positioned on the pedestrians. And I thought to myself, well, that's just, there's no reason that there needs to be a camera that records who is crossing the street 
unless it's for uh, unwarranted surveillance of the population. And it's there, and it's not just here, it's everywhere, and it's becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, and privacy is becoming something that we we should not... Uh, it's easy to take it for granted and just assume that certain things are private, but so often it's being eroded right before our eyes. We're not even seeing it, uh, boiling a frog type scenario. Before we realize it, we have no privacy left and there's no way to regain it. So with regards to, I mean, if you've got a smart TV, there's probably a camera in it, right? I'm sure that there's a camera in at least some models of refrigerators. Cameras are everywhere. Uh, and we have to do our best to try and regain a level of privacy that even if you are an honest law-abiding person means that people can't snoop on whatever it is in your life. You know, well, I, I love say, where, Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I love where we live right now because there's abandoned properties on both sides of us privacy. Nobody's going to be looking out of their window and say, oh, oh, Don's pruning the cherry tree today. Uh, maybe, maybe I should, uh, you know, speak to that about the locals because no, it doesn't, I don't have people looking at the just uh, mundane elements of my life. And I like it that way. I'd rather those mundane elements just be me puttering around in my backyard. Nobody looking at me, just let me trim the fruit trees in silence and listen to a podcast while I do it. Nobody bug me. That world, that environment is going away. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you just said. The problem is <clears throat> our data is valuable, but it is our data, right? It is understood that if you're using a free service, a Facebook, an Instagram, you know, whatever, that you're the product. However, even then, there should be limits to what you are willing to give up because, yes, they can make a complete model of you. You mentioned smart TVs. <clears throat> smart TVs track a lot of what you do. It's the reason I won't use, for example, a Netflix app in a Samsung TV or an Apple TV app in a Samsung TV. I trust Apple's privacy policies more than I do Google and my my Sony TV, for example, or my Samsung's run on Android, um, or more than I trust Samsung. If I run my Apple TV as a separate device and a physical Apple TV, anything I do on that Apple TV and anything I watch is going through Apple, and I have more trust that it's not going to be abused, that they know, yeah. you know the shows and my watching habits and times of day, et cetera. If I watch the Apple TV app through Samsung, it's still going through Samsung's electronics. And my smart TVs, the internet's turned off. They're not plugged into Ethernet, and the Wi-Fi is turned off. They have no business to be on the internet. I've got a separate Apple TV device. I'm not saying everybody should do that. And obviously, everybody's mileage may vary. You're going to make the decision, hopefully, that is best for you. But you can't make that decision if you don't take the time to stop and think about it. That's right. And uh, my pick of the week at the end of this episode will echo uh, a possible solution that we should be aware of. I will save that for the end, however. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to be buying a, a Tesla uh, anytime soon, so long as uh, Mr. Musk is at the helm of that particular company. And yes. And real quick before you go on, I just have to say a good friend of mine, one of my best friends just bought a brand new Tesla Model Y. And 
I had not seen a Model Y and I go to sit in it and he's showing the car to me. And I got to say, I'd love that car. It's amazing. Not a chance in hell I would own one. And it's too bad <laughs> because it really is a beautiful car with amazing technology, you know, skipping the fact that they had to replace a bunch of steering wheels. But still, I'd love it. But there's no way in hell that company is going to be in my house. Well, uh, that said, I have a Starlink connection here because it's the most stable and reliable internet connection that I can currently get. When that changes, I will probably stop using Starlink, um, even though, you know, uh, Musk's antics are only tangentially related to some of those other entities because he's so busy, uh, you know, uh, doing lewd college and high school humor on Twitter these days. But, uh, okay. <laughs> let's let's go back but by the way you know we, we bought a new car here in bulgaria and i bought a volkswagen polo if people aren't familiar with what a polo is think of a golf but smaller a golf junior it's maybe about 20 centimeters shorter about four centimeters narrower and uh you know it, it's just it, it's a smaller version and the streets here are often two-way streets with one lane of traffic and parking on the side somehow, you just, you want to have a small car. Um, if they had offered, if Volkswagen made uh, an electric version of the Polo, I probably would have bought that. But, you know, I bought the, uh, uh, the the gasoline engine variety. And yes, I got the fancy one with a two liter turbocharged engine because a small car with a, a fast engine is fun to drive. And, um, and so there's that. But if I had the option to get a reliable electric car at a small size with good performance from anybody other than Tesla probably would have bought that uh, in the next couple of years. I'd say five years, uh, Volkswagen, Mercedes, BMW, all of those brands will have exactly what I want. And, uh, you know, I, this car will last is probably a decade or more. And I'm not saying that I'm going to replace it anytime soon, but, um, when I, when I make that next car purchase with all of the smarts in it, I am going to do an audit, uh, a meta research, whatever, understanding what people are putting into these cars in terms of camera technology and what their policies are for its usage and possibly whether or not that uh, information is encrypted because that is now part of a purchasing decision for me whenever I'm looking at buying an important item like a a smart TV or a car or anything, uh, what they do with my data should be on everybody's radar when you're making those decisions. And you know what? You just triggered a memory in me. We should have known this was going to happen. This happened with Ring a year or yep. so ago, it two did. years ago, where we found out that Ring was looking at the cameras people had inside their house. I don't have a camera inside my house. That's part of the reason. But we should have known these things. The one guy was right. We should have known it would happen, but that's not because we have no expectation of privacy. It's because we know that companies or employees unchecked may do things that are wrong. Are, are you ready for the next story about a company doing oh something my that's God, wrong, yes. Steve? Oh my God. <laughs> so do, do, you get, do you get to say that line or do I? Uh, I I'm going to tell the title and then I'm going to let you take it from there. So Petapixel reports, Canon jumps into NFTs, building a digital art market called Cadabra. 
Steve, what say you? And Don's email to me said, quote, the rotting, hold on, I got I to gotta build this up. And Don's email to me said, the rotting, oozing corpse of the NFT horse is still being kicked. And it's yep. so true. <laughs> so true. So I, I, I figure this is one of those things where uh, an idea for NFTs was pitched in front of some sort of executive committee, right? Back when NFTs were hot. Maybe on the trailing end of it, because that takes a while for it to even get to that executive committee. And they greenlit a project that then had to go through other committees and other engineers. And it was moving slowly as corporate culture usually moves. And now, while NFTs are the snake oil scam of 2023... That cycle has now completed to the point where Canon is jumping into it when the ship has sunk. It's been at the bottom of the ocean collecting barnacles for a dog's <laughs> age. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh. You need uh, to write I, a book like that. I, I broke Steve. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. <laughs> and by the way, did you know you may not? Canon's already done NFTs. They have. June yeah, of this 2022, they announced the Legends Mint, a bunch of old Canon, I shouldn't say old, I don't mean old as an age, ex-Canon Explorers of Light. Uh, when they leave the Explorers of Light program, they are designated as Canon Legends. And there's huge names in the Canon Legends group, right? Richard Horowitz, for example. They created a limited collection of photo NFTs from Canon Legends called the Legends Mint. That was June of last year. If you go to the link now, it's gone. You would have thought yep. they learned their lesson, but nope. So, I mean, let's just describe NFTs in a uh, fairly jaded fashion, because I'm sure some people out there are still... Uh, supporting their existence, um, you know, a number of celebrities among them, such as William Shatner. But the the idea of of an NFT, a non fungible token, basically is, and you're probably familiar with websites like OpenSea and such. You have a private, and this is important that I uh, emphasize this: a private, not controlled by anybody, can disappear tomorrow database that is where your NFT lives. And it's supposed to exist forever in the blockchain, but what exists in the blockchain is typically a URL to this private entity that could disappear when you snap your fingers or when you wake up right. tomorrow. And so you have this digital item controlled by a nonsense, almost non-existent company that could be bought by another company that could, uh, you know, if, if somebody sends a DMCA claim against that company for your NFT, even if it's not legitimate, they must respond and take it down. It, it will no longer exist if any number of tiny things happen or just time goes by and erodes that company's existence. Just like people that used to sell you a parcel of land on the moon. 
that parcel of land existed in their database and their database only. It was not backed by any government or international agency. And when that company went out of business, that database that said you owned that bit of land on the moon also disappeared. And that's what NFTs are. And I consider them to be a scam. And, uh, and I'll, I'll leave that there. And that might upset some people. But it's not a long-term investment. It's not an investment at all. It's just buying a URL on a website that points to a picture of something, uh, or in some cases, a video. But that's it. That's all it is. And and let's be clear, that URL in the blockchain is tied to you and your account. Theoretically, you'd still own the NFT that you can't see, find, or do anything with. Yes, to me, NFTs are a scam. I have huge ethical issues with NFTs. Does that mean I don't think that you should go create one and sell one? Look, you do what you need to do. Um, I tried. I, my, to- a, a copy of my The Snowflake print is available as an NFT. I, I put that on OpenSea back when I was just experimenting with the whole idea. I created one just to see what the process was like, and nobody bought it, and I don't blame them because I wouldn't buy an NFT either. Um, you do you, well, and people. People, people but- have made money. Mike Winkleman, otherwise known as Beeple, sold a JPEG in 2021 for 69.3 million. Yay for him. But I believe if you, um, again, I'm going to make people mad saying this. I believe if you're selling NFTs, knowing what we know about NFTs, and if you don't know what we all know about NFTs, then I question the fact that you should be in this at all. But if you're doing that, you're taking people. You're trying to get people to give you the money while this market is hot, knowing that this market technically kind of doesn't really exist. That's a scam in my, you're, you're, and the number of people who bought their own NFTs to jack anonymously to jack up the price. This entire thing is wrought with, with it's unregulated. Uh, flaws. So it, it, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> With an unregulated market like this, uh, people are going to take advantage of it in in terrible ways. And what you mentioned that the Beeple sale, uh, and and there's a lot of controversy about who bought it uh, and how much of that was just sensationalism and where that money actually came from and where it went. Um, that's uh, that's another discussion uh, that I'd have to uh, kind of read up on to refresh my memory of it because it was a while ago. But it wasn't a possible, cut and dry sale. It's possible you can't find out. Whether that's yeah. actually even true or legitimate. However, if you're interested, Kadabra.io. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't go there, folks. Uh, <laughs> but well, let's I'm, take a look here's, at. Here's I'm going to I'm going to turn this question around on you though because yeah. I'm really dying. I told you at the beginning I had so many questions here. I am really dying to know. Forget NFTs as a whole. A major corporation like Canon. Why? Right. Even in that meeting you talked about, that somehow these people in the meeting were completely out of touch and two years behind what everybody else is thinking. There is no way in a technology company somebody wasn't in that meeting that looked at everybody and went, I'm sorry, what? You guys are thinking of doing what? Stupid says what? Somebody along the line should have pulled the plug on this. 
Uh, and yes, I, I get it. There's, uh, there is a psychological, um, uh, term and I forget what it is off the top of my head, but where you invest a lot of money into something, you just want to keep putting money into it because you've already sunk so much, uh, investment into a particular thing. You want to see a return on that, even though it's very unlikely that something is going to come of it. Uh, we're, we're sort of seeing that here, I think. But this but- isn't the $10 million cow to them. Why why dip your toe in this? You're not going to make a fortune at this. So why put your company name behind NFTs? I, that's One what I don't understand. Canon has done a lot of, uh, of side projects that never succeed. This is not their first one. Sometimes it's uh, software stuff, uh, you know, uh, services that are offered that are exclusive to Canon and things like that. And I think that a, a lot of times they bring something to market so that they can justify the patents that they've registered relating to that particular project. I can't imagine what patents are relating to the NFT space that are relevant moving forward here, but there might be something that says if they bring this to market, it validates the use of the patents that they've registered relating to this particular project. And that is the only saving grace that I could possibly think of here. I wish them well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Let's move on to the fourth story, uh, and th- this one I I enjoy because it's um, it's it's not I guess it is kind of uh, ethical and scientific at the same time. Uh, from Petapixel, scientists use AI to enhance the first ever photo of a black hole. If you remember, we talked about this when it was first unveiled. The Event Horizon Telescope uh, created the image, the very first uh, image in air quotes, because it's not photons that were collected uh, per se. It's not a photograph uh, of a black hole in the event horizon surrounding it. So a team of researchers has developed a machine learning technique to give a first ever uh, image of a supermassive black hole a new and sharper look. So basically what they're doing here is is they're using a technique uh, called dictionary learning, where you can feed a bunch of uh, material into an algorithm, uh, telling it what something should look like based on the dictionary definition. And we're not talking about words, you're just giving it a whole bunch of images of what something should look like. And you're then providing Call it them training materials. You're giving training them training materials. materials. Yes, yes. Uh, and then you provide them with the image that they are to enhance based on what they now know that that thing should look like. This is how a lot of AI image generation uh, material works. And so the thing is, if you feed an algorithm, uh, this AI brain, let's call it, if you feed it... Uh, fake information, well, not not fake, but like not real images of black holes because we only have this one. But if you can computationally generate what we think based on our knowledge of the universe, a black hole should look like and create a database of hundreds of thousands of images or however many that they put into this thing, the number is irrelevant. It's just a lot um, of computationally generated images of black holes as this dictionary and then tell it to uh, enhance the very first image from the Event Horizon Telescope, it has generated an image based on all of our knowledge and this AI technology, an enhanced version of that image. Now, is that wrong, Steve? No, not at all. And actually, 
I would not approach this. I mean, look, this is not mid-journey, okay? They, yeah. they didn't go to mid-journey and type in a prompt, hey, dude, what do you think a black hole would look like? And came back with a donut, right? That's not what happened. <laughs> we had the original image of Messier 87. And then what they did was they created about 30,000 simulated images that were based specifically on gas accreting onto a black hole based on, like you said, the, the physics and our understanding of the universe. And what they looked for was common reproducible patterns. Using those patterns plus what we saw in the original image, and then there's going to be missing pieces. So using our knowledge of physics, they recreated those missing pieces, and we got what I will argue is an amazing image. And we know things about a black hole. We know that that black hole, Messier uh, 87, is about 25 million miles across. The black so hole at are, the center of the Messier 87 galaxy, let's just clarify. Yes, at the center of the galaxy. Um, we know enough about the universe and physics and light and black holes to extrapolate certain things and so this is a scientific model. Is it 100% factual? Probably not. But it's it's a scientific guess, and it sure as hell is a better guess than anything we've had. And it really is fascinating to look at. And we know, um, based on our computational models of black holes, how big an accretion disk is likely to be uh, based on all of the variables around this particular black hole. But... When you are computationally generating these images and feeding it into this algorithm, there's one caveat that needs to be stated, that we are assuming we know enough about the universe to be accurate with those calculations. You know, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Correct. Um, you know, is and one miscalculation thing, could right? be huge in reality. Exactly. So like- One, one uh, mistake. Hawking radiation, I think, has been uh, disputed at the very least. It's not been proven. It might have been disproven uh, theoretically, which is where um, a data, uh, as, as far as like a, a matter information, can uh, somehow possibly uh, escape from a black hole. But there are a lot of unknowns as to how a black hole actually functions and the nature of the universe at large. We we haven't figured out the very, very, very small things. We also haven't figured out the very big things either, um, or the very fast things or the very slow things. You know, there's a lot of stuff in physics that are still questionable. And so when you're using a model based on our current knowledge to try and glean additional information off like of things that we don't yet know, it might be a scientific misstep if you're trying to use this as some sort of valid scientific information. But if it's just for the beauty of it, I think that they hit the nail on the head. Uh, because if it's trying to depict what that black hole actually does look like, well, you're interpolating information that is based on your assumptions, your computer dreams of what a black hole is, and applying that onto reality, and, and I don't think that there is necessarily scientific value in doing so, but it does make it look pretty, and, and there is something of value uh, to, to say for that. Well, and let's be clear. Th their process is transparent. That's what I care about. They're telling you what it was trained on, how they yep. did it. 
that's all I care about. And based on that, I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating as well. And I, I really am curious to see how science in general, whether it's uh, people doing biological research or, you know, uh, uh, astronomy observations, how they're going to use these models to uh, to get additional information. I know that at least in terms of, uh, you know, certain uh, body scans, uh, computers will be able to read the results and create a diagnosis better than humans, or at least faster and cheaper than humans. And then, of course, it's confirmed by a human at the end of it. Uh, that's only going to continue along. So uh, science and AI will be walking hand in hand as time goes on. Keep our finger on walking that Walking hand in hand. Great segue. Yeah. <laughs> you caught that. Thank you, Steve. Because uh, our next story is uh, also from Petapixel. And so I'll read the title. Divorced woman demands refund from wedding uh, from a wedding photographer four years later. Uh, Steve, pick it up from there. Okay. No. <laughs> I mean, that's the as soon as I saw the title on this, when you sent it to me, I'm like, uh, no. Not yeah, my, my notes. Usually I give a couple of sentences in the notes that I provide. Yeah, that's the right. Guest. That's right. And my note was, ha, no. That's <laughs> a South African wedding photographer, Lance Romeo, love the last name for a wedding photographer, shot a wedding in 2019. He quoted approximately $815 US. They negotiated. He ended up doing the wedding, again, South Africa, for about $615 US. <clears throat> 650 The couple yeah. is now, uh, yeah, okay. Couple is now divorced. And the bride, ex-bride, ex-wife, whatever, as a customer, I don't know, wants a refund, wants a full refund. And I'm not going to go through the whole text thread yet, but I, there's a bunch I got to throw in there. But the, the first thing literally that she said cracked me up. She said, I'm now divorced. And those pictures, I and my ex-husband don't need them anymore. You did a wonderful job on them. But they went to waste as we are now divorced. I will need a, a refund of the amount we paid you because we don't need them anymore. And he answered back, this is a joke, right? And yeah, she goes, no, me. dear. <laughs> yeah. She goes, no, dear. I'm serious. And I'm sorry, but his response wins the internet. Okay. So I'm going to read his very, response. Okay, uh, I, 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 I want to take, I'm very sorry to hear that uh, uh, you and your husband are divorced. But I'm sure you can figure out that that's not going to happen, referring to the refund. Uh, photography is a non-refundable service once I've already delivered to you the service and the pictures. I can't refund you because I can't untake the pictures. And and that that is just wonderful. Take care now. And then he, and he, then he ends off. with, take care now. Yeah, yeah. It's a like, good day. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, it, Amazing. I can't untake the pictures. That is just, I, I wish he just wrote that. I wish that was his solemn response. Like just, I can't untake the pictures, period. That would have won even better for me. Um, but wow. Um, I, I just goes to show that the quality of clients and I don't know what the average wedding photographer is hired for in South Africa. Markets vary wildly around the globe. Um, but, you know, maybe that's a lot. Maybe that's a little. But the point is, 
a photographer was paid to create images and then created them. And and then they were paid, right? It's, it's not just like a contract and then they weren't paid for it and then there's a dispute about things. No, the images were delivered. Everybody was happy. End of deal. And so you can't go back and uh, and ask somebody to, uh, you know, for a refund. In that. But it just, people think that you can. And the average consumer might not be this dumb. This particular client was. And you got to be wary that, you know, if you're going for clients that are trying to negotiate a cheaper price, they inherently are debating in their mind how much you are worth and they're trying to make you worth less. And this particular type of client might be the kind that pulls this type of stunt after the fact. I'm not saying that this is common, but it definitely does happen. Well, and it went weir- weirdly nutty after that conversation. <laughs> She threatened to seek to send her lawyers. She said, this is something you have to have in your contract that there are no refunds and you didn't have that in your contract. And I'm no longer in need of your pictures. I understand it's not your fault, but you have to give me a refund. Uh, And again, he just keeps ending. Like he'll say, you're not getting a refund and then ends it with, okay, thanks. Take care now. (laughs) I I need to buy this guy a beer. Um, yep. <laughs> she's still going after him and she's saying to him, where can we meet up to settle this and move forward? And he's like, no. Yeah, well, but he says no with a Bugs Bunny meme image of yes. no. And then followed up with tell your lawyer to call me, for which the response is a thumbs up emoticon. And that's where the story ends. We don't Except know if the lawyer. She's actually threatening to sue him for defamation of character, even though he never publicly identified her. Really, honestly, this is this is the dictionary definition of why I photograph concerts and not weddings. Yes. I mean, <laughs> Bridezilla can come years afterwards. Uh, Divorcezilla, uh, you know, is is sort of. I mean, if I could coin a term, it's not a very enlightened one. But um, you know, you've got somebody that I get it. You know, you're uh, four years into a marriage, you're getting divorced. Your your world is changing dramatically, and not for the better in some cases. Um, who knows what trauma this particular person is going through? And I. <laughs> I, I, I can't say that I I know any more than this article is depicting, but I can tell that there's there's somebody that's hurting here. Uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but there is somebody hurting, and uh, they're taking it out on the photographer in some way, and it, we don't know who this is. So yeah, uh, add me to the defamation lawsuit if I'm trying to say something about this particular person that they are not specifically stating. I don't know who they are at all. Uh, I just know that they are in Johannesburg um, in South Africa. And that's as close as a, a identification that I can get. But wow. Um, uh, yeah, so again, check out the the conversation on uh, on Petapixel and you'll find the link at photogeekweekly.com to all of the stories that we've been talking about on this episode. And let me know what you think. And if you've had any other similar um, client nightmares in the past, I, I can tell you one that I've had. And, uh, and, and I'm not afraid to, to, to name them specifically. Um, this was the Barry Colts, the uh, sports team, the, uh, the hockey team in Barry, Ontario, where I uh, had lived for a very uh, long time, over a decade. And they hired me to photograph one of their games, to have the entire arena filled with people 
and to have, uh, of course, the, the, the team playing. And uh, I was aiming to get like a, a game winning goal uh, and everybody cheering. And I ended up getting that shot. But it required, uh, you know, a, a bit of uh, practice and research. You know, I had to go to the arena during a, uh, a training session to find the best location for me to take the shot. Uh, and, and I found it. But that takes time, right? And to uh, judge exposure, right? Because the uh, the arena uh, is lit quite differently. The, the rink is very bright. The uh, the audience is quite dark, and and they can put lights on the audience, but they don't do that often. So you have to kind of judge how you're going to shoot that. I decided at the time that that it was going to be an HDR sequence uh, where. Uh, it's a manual blend of multiple exposures where the audience was one exposure and the rink was a separate exposure uh, because that's the only way that I could balance things properly. And then I go back for the the whole game and I'm there for the entire game. And it's like I'm shooting a wedding uh, in, in the sense that there's a significant time sink involved in doing this and the post-processing of manually blending an HDR and, and making everything look natural and normal after the fact. And uh, I wanted, uh, we, we by the way, and this is totally my fault. I didn't, uh, I didn't discuss the price with them and they didn't either. So maybe it's both of our fault. And I came to them with a bill of $1,500, uh, for two days of my time and post-processing, uh, and not full days, mind you, but this, this is about where I am, uh, for a day rate, uh, about $1,500, uh, to do documentary filming or to do anything like that. And they scoffed at me and said, no, we're not going to pay that. That's too much. And so they never got to use the image. I never got paid for the image. And so that was, again, a miscommunication uh, because the price was not stated up front about what this would cost. And if it had been, had they known what it would cost me for that amount of time, they probably would have said no and we would have parted ways beforehand. So, uh, Steve, do you have any, uh, any horror stories? I have horror stories like you wouldn't believe because I DJed weddings for 18 years. Oh, God. So I had the Nightmare Brides. I had one <clears throat> at Disneyland Hotel where uh, usually before I booked a wedding, I kind of interviewed them and let them think they were interviewing me. And quite often I would look at them and go, you know what? I'm not sure I'm the best guy for you. Let me refer you to somebody because you could tell. Uh, I took a contract with one that were the nicest couple. They were amazing. And, <clears throat> you know, I was usually booked a year in advance. So as it got closer to the wedding, we go through the planning stages and I go to them and, you know, let's talk about the, the evening and the event and the order. And so musically, let's talk about your musical tastes. And she goes, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a list of all the songs. <clears throat> I said, I, I don't understand what you mean. She said, I'm going to give you every song to play and what time it plays. And she gave me a six page sheet. And I mean, literally 932, this song, 937, everybody to the balcony for fireworks, 943 for the whole six hour wedding. And I went, just so that you know, I understand that you want all this music and I will do whatever you want, but You've invited 250 people to join you that night of all ages. And there's you know, kind of an unwritten social responsibility to make sure that, you know, they're able to request a song or, or you think of them. No, we want those. Yeah. A, a four-year-old runs up to the DJ and requests the chicken dance song. I'm, I'm sure you've got it. Nope. 
Nope. <laughs> I had I had an artist one time by the name I won't say his name actually. Very well known artist drew in charcoal, and uh, when I planned the wedding with him, he looks at me and he goes, "I don't want anything that isn't genuine." I said, "What do you mean by not genuine?" He goes. It's got to be from the heart. I'm talking like Hendrix and Zeppelin and 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 stuff like that. I, I don't want any of that meaningless pop. And I'm thinking, now, this is a fancy wedding in an embassy suites ballroom. Again, about 200, 250 people in Orange County, California. Like, this is a high-end wedding. And I looked at him. I said, okay, again, you're <laughs> people, many, many people, different ages might want to go. <laughs> nope. So during the wedding, I'm playing Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, um, you know, classic rock type stuff. The doors, Aerosmith, he wanted Van the Hill doors. And, yeah. And somebody came up at the time and asked for something from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And because it was big at the time. And I'm looking across the dance floor at the groom thinking, he's going to shoot me. But I, I, at this point, I got to get, I got to do something. And I put it on and I kid you not, he ran full speed. I'm not talking like light gallop, (laughs) right? I mean, full speed across the dance floor. And I'm thinking he's about to yell at me. And all he did luckily was come up to me and he goes, can you believe this guy? He doesn't mean a word that he's singing. Wow. No, probably, probably not. (laughs) That's, uh, huh. Uh, yeah, the, the social interactions with photography. Maybe that's why I chose macro photography as a specialty, because I don't have to deal with people most of the time. Yeah, uh, I I don't think I could handle the wedding photography space, and uh, I'm I I can uh, see why you. I mean, shooting concerts, uh, what, what you do now, a lot of uh, you deal with people, but you're not actually interacting with them. You're trying to catch them at their best, and and you're in a particular spot, and you're following a particular protocol, and you don't have to deal with bridezilla. So, exactly. Exactly. I, I had to add that as a fifth story to this particular episode. It just it wouldn't have been a complete uh, a complete session of chatting and bantering across with you, Steve, if I didn't add that on. Uh, now, before we get to our picks of the week, uh, where can people find you and your illustrious podcasts as well? Uh, people can find me at, well, my, my portfolio, quote unquote, is at Steve, is uh, stevebrazel.com. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's. On social media, I'm on Mastodon, Twitter, or Instagram, at Steve Brazel. Again, like the country, but two L's. The podcast is BehindTheShot.tv. I've got some great guests lined up, and in fact, my pick of the week is partially because of uh, of the podcast as well. Uh, and yeah, reach out, follow me. Let's have some fun. Yeah, and uh, of course you can find me at uh, doncom.ca or .bg for that matter. They both go to the same website, which links to all of my social media accounts. And I know my website is woefully out of date and I have to update it and that'll be coming hopefully later this year. Uh, It still states somewhere in my bio that I'm in Canada and I am not. But uh, all the links to social media are there, and I uh, I would be happy to interact with with anybody outside of this podcast. Send me an email, write to me on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Flickr. Uh, I, I love. Did you Flickr join Mastodon yet? Last time I talked I to you, you said you were you know going what? to. 
I am still going to. Uh, that that is still on my to do list. Uh, and you and Chris Marquardt and a lot of others have uh, convinced me that that is the place to be. So Mastodon, I will be there, and I will make the announcement here when I am there. But I don't know um, if I follow Chris. I gotta follow Chris. Yeah, yeah, he's he's pretty uh, he's pretty big on Mastodon. So, uh, and, and especially the way that Twitter is devolving right now, I don't know how long I'm necessarily going to be on that platform. Uh, I'm surprised that I am still there, uh, to be honest with you. But, uh, and I guess I could say the same thing for the meta platforms of Facebook and Instagram because it seems like these are sinking ships. And yes, I still have a big audience, and I'm going to engage that audience. And thank you for interacting with me on those platforms. Um, I don't know what's going to replace them necessarily. Mastodon is one potentially, but it's uh, some people are talking about notes um, on what's the platform? Uh, Substack notes. Substack, uh, yeah. Uh, but but the interview with Neelai Patel of The Verge and the the head of Substack was not a good interview. <laughs> like when Neil. I'm not, I don't want to ruin it. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. I haven't. But, but there's a there, there's a point where Neli looks at him and he goes, I don't understand why you're having trouble saying this. You realize that this interview isn't going well, right? Like your answers are wrong, right? You know that, right? It was hilarious. <laughs> well, now I have to go check that out. Uh, I'll Maybe I'll put a link in the, the show notes for other people to do the same. But let, let's go into our picks. And uh, you mentioned yours uh, uh, briefly. Let's get yours out of the way first, and then I'll, I'll follow. Okay. So I have not used these lights personally uh, intently yet, right? I, I haven't done really a lot with them myself. But I've met the people from Light in Motion, and they are the same people that do Stella Pro lights. And Stella Pro has a couple of different models of lights, including the Stella Pro Reflex lights. So these are studio lights, right? Well, they're hybrid lights. They're both constant. They're LED. They're mm -hmm. both constant and digital burst. So they overcharge the LED to then let it burst. And so the burst is effectively uh, one stop brighter than the constant light. Right. So they're a little bit of both. What's amazing about them, I, I've met these people at WPPI, and I met them last year at NAB, and they just sent me a two-pack of Stella Pro Reflex S model uh, that I'm going to do a review on. And these lights, to me, the first time I touched them, I think, was at WPPI. They're so small. The battery is in the handle. You can get, if you're doing digital burst, there's two really cool things with the digital burst you can get from the battery that's in the handle, and this thing is super light and super small, you get 15,000 roughly estimate, depends on how much power, but at full power, you get about 15,000 flashes off a battery, wow. which is insane. And because it's digital, there's no reload time. So with the digital burst, you can shoot 20 frames a second and not miss a flash. Now, is it the brightest light out there? No, but some of the brighter ones are also bigger and heavier, and this thing is super small. It's got wonderful ways of mounting it, really, really nice controls, and then you can flip it over into the constant light mode. And I'm not talking like on a mono light where it might have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, a modeling light. It's not just like a modeling light. It's a video LED light. The issue there is there is a fan 
Depending on your use model, the fan could be or may not be an issue. Um, I don't think it will be for me. And what's interesting for me is I see these, they're not cheap, but I've never bought a studio strobe. I've, I've looked at the FJ, the Westcott FJs. I've looked at Profoto. I've looked at um, a bunch of different studio type lights. Uh, Alien B. I've never bought them because they are big. They are heavy. Uh, they either are bigger because they have a battery built in or I need something external. They're cumbersome to move and set up. I need a beauty dish or a large softbox. And I've always been able to get by with speed lights. These are so small and so light. And you don't have to put big beauty dishes on them. They have Fresno, uh, you know, Fresnel lenses that act almost like grids to focus the light so it stays small. You can also put softboxes or umbrellas on them. Yeah, they sell so them. For in, me uh, moving, you can buy the lights individually, but you can also buy them in a kit with all of these uh, accoutrements. Uh, uh, like a, including spider holster clips. I mean, it's really well thought out, but again, not cheap. Like the Reflex S's retails at 1100 bucks. It was just on sale at B&H last week. A couple hundred bucks off, that's gone. Um, the regular Reflex is 850. That one only does 10 frames a second instead of 20 on the burst. But really cool lights. Yeah, uh, I'm seeing that the the lights themselves are uh, $1,096, but they've got the kits are actually discounted to be uh, a couple of dollars less than that with all of the accessories. Uh, and then there's, of course, kits that have uh, two lights, and they've got other products within that same lineup yep. as well. Um, so Stella Pro Lights uh, from Light End Motion. I'm curious yep, when you, you get your go, hands you on go them. To Stella, you can go to Stella, I think it's StellaProLights.com or StellaPro.com. I'll have to look. Uh, well, we'll have the link in the show notes to, to where you can get a hold of these. And I'm curious when you get your uh, hands-on experience with them, how that actually, you know, from a, a, a theoretical standpoint, they look good on paper, but how their usefulness uh, in, in the field or in the studio, uh, I'm curious to see what you're going to have to say about them when the time yeah, comes. Yeah, like I say, they're sitting next to me and I'm super excited because they're the little bit of playing I've done very, very happy with them. I want to get them outside, test them out in the daylight. How much light can I overpower? That type of thing. But but yeah, so far, very, very, uh, very much like them so far. And my pick uh, goes back to our story about uh, being spied on by Tesla cars and what have you. And, you know, there, there are ways that you can protect yourself. You don't have to be paranoid or anything. Uh, but oftentimes, I like to connect uh, through a VPN. And I, I turn it off when I'm doing Zoom calls and things like that, just because it uh, adds latency and, uh, you know, there's some bandwidth concerns that it's ever, it, it does take a slight hit on that. But ExpressVPN is what I use to connect to uh, to the world at large. And most of the time, that connection is just on. I can connect to a, a server nearby or something very far away. Uh, and, and yes, you know, if I, if I want to uh, pretend that I'm in Canada, uh, because, you know, my uh, banking system uh, might raise a red flag if I try to log into my Canadian bank from Bulgaria, because that's an, an unusual encounter. And, uh, you know, it, so there's a lot of reasons why you could use a VPN. But what happens is all of your traffic 
is 100% encrypted. Nobody can parse it. Uh, and ExpressVPN uh, has a, a protocol where it's designed around never storing any information whatsoever. Uh, it lives in memory on your computer so that when you close down the application, there is no hint of anything. None of the data that was transferred is stored anywhere, not on their end, not on your end. Um, it is just a great way. And they've been audited to prove this that it is one of the best VPN services out there. And if you want to use a VPN, don't use a free one. Because if you're using a free one, just like you're using social media, you become the product. Uh, you become the thing of value to the platform, and they will sell your information to somebody who's willing to buy it. But ExpressVPN does not do that. Uh, and I first heard about it from the This Week in Tech Network on uh, Security Now from Steve Gibson. And I really trust his opinion on things. Um, and if he if he says it's good, then I'm going to trust it when it comes to internet security. So I'm going to put the, actually the link in the show notes will be to expressvpn.com slash twit. Just if you do subscribe to that, that's a nod to them where I first heard about it from. And, uh, and I, it's a, they're a sponsor of their network. And maybe that'll uh, throw a couple of dollars into <coughs> their piggy bank. I'm not sure how that works. But um, at the very least, expressvpn.com slash twit. Well, what's your experience, Steve, with VPNs? And, uh, and do you recommend this as well? I, I recommend VPNs often, actually, and a lot of my IT clients I set up with hardware VPNs that tend to be VPNs, <clears throat> excuse me, tend to be VPNs that are built into endpoint hardware. So it's, you know, a WatchGuard firewall in multiple offices, and I'll create a branch office VPN between, between the two offices. When you're talking about this type of mobile VPN that you can run off a mobile device or off a computer, but you can also, depending on your router type, program these types of things into a router. ExpressVPN is the one that I recommend. And by the way, the pricing on ExpressVPN is very, very good if you go for a year at a time. It's not cheap if you do a month. It's like 13 bucks. It's 10 bucks if you do six months billing in advance. If you pay for a year at once, you're talking $8.32 a month. Yeah. That's, that's super, super cheap. And <clears throat> ExpressVPN kind of does it all right. Like you say, they don't store any data. On their end, things are refreshed on a regular basis. Um, so there, you know, if somebody comes to them and said, here's a warrant, we need the data, it's literally, I, I, we don't have the data. So yeah, ExpressVPN is the one that I will do. Well, and uh, it was funny. It was the last episode or one prior to that, I had forgotten my VPN on uh, and, uh, when we were in the green room and, and you, you looked at me like I was a three headed monkey. It's like, what, what, what do you mean? You're coming through a VPN. You're coming through perfectly clear and there's no degradation in, in no in latency, latency either because a VPN has to be encrypted on one side and decrypted on another side. And usually there's latency involved in that. If you buy a cheap firewall that does hardware VPNs, a lot of times that's purely software and you'll see huge latency. If you buy a good hardware firewall, it will have processors built into it to do the encryption and decryption. He's coming across ExpressVPN. Sounds like a commercial at this point. Uh, <laughs> and it's not. He was coming across from Bulgaria to Southern California over a VPN and looked perfect. It was awesome, actually. 
Yeah. So, and again, I do turn it off typically when I do the recordings because there is going to be a hit, but that hit was not noticeable at all. So ExpressVPN, that's my pick of the week. And, uh, and, and let me add one, one thing. I looked yeah. it up on, on those Stella Pro Reflex lights. The, the website is StellaProLights.com, uh, StellaProLights.com. And uh, there was one other thing I was going to say about them. And now I can't remember what. They oh. look good, though. I mean, I'm, I'm continuing to, to take a look at their website, and I see, can see an image um, of, of the, the light uh, in somebody's hand, and they are tiny. Yeah, they're very, and again, what really makes it to me is that you don't have to put a big beauty dish on. They have different Fresnel lenses that you put on that act like a grid um, that kind of, you know, focus the light, as it were. And really, honestly, it's just there, there are really kind of cool light and I wish I could remember what else I was going to say and I I can't now and that's on me. Well, that's uh Oh, I know what I was going to say. I know what I was going to say because it's sitting next to me. <laughs> okay. Uh one of the things I did like about these is you have multiple tr- wireless trigger options. They'll work with Profoto, oh, cool. they'll work with Godox. Uh there's an uh Elencrom. So it's not even like you're locked in. If you've already got studio strobes on a Godox or a Profoto thing, you can use your triggers, which is really, really nice. That And that, that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of proprietary standards for communicating with lights. Um, and, and you might realize that, that, okay, you shoot Canon, you've got ETTL, Nikon is ITTL, and these are the three of the lens metering communications with the flash to figure out how much light to put out. And every company produces their own proprietary uh, signaling, whether it's a through the lens meter or it's just communication to the lights, especially as you mentioned with the studio strobes, uh, a pro photo protocol is not the same as an Ellen Crown protocol. And they, they are entirely different languages behind the scenes. And I'm glad that this speaks all those languages. Yep. Cool. Yeah. It's very, very nice. And again, go, just go look at the picture because you'll see how small they are and, and secure yourself with ExpressVPN. All right, those picks of the week uh, wind down this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, and I thank you all for listening. Thank you, Steve, for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, And as always, to those listening, thank you for doing so. Communicate to me, uh, and I love the feedback. And, And by the way, if you're still listening, thank you. Give a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to this, Stitcher or um, just put a good word into those platforms so that I can keep growing this audience. There hasn't been reviews posted in a long while, and it would be great if there is some fresh ones there to entice new listeners to the podcast. Um, That is the only ask that I have for you on this particular episode. Do me a favor, write a review. Thanks for listening. And now it's time to get out and shoot.